My name's Sam Towns. And I'm Alex Norton. Before we get into today's episode, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. The Forgecast is brought to you thanks to Weber Abrasives, where Aussie bladesmiths can get all of the best abrasives around. Visit robertabrasives.on.net today to stock up. Yes, what have you been up to this week, Alex? I've been trying to get on top of some things that have sort of slipped a lot. Mm. Um... And one of those things has been Frankie, my Franken-Grinder. He's just been... There's a lot of things about him that have annoyed me. But it's been one of those things where rather than taking the time to repair them, because um, I hate doing fabrication work, um, I've just sort of dealt with his idiosyncrasies quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been investing some serious time and completely refabricating his tracking and tensioning system. Um and making him work a bit better and uh, the new tracking works great um got to really test it out today but um it was a, a solid two days work to build an entirely like a, a totally different mechanism way of tracking and tensioning the system um yeah it so it doesn't like not a pneumatic cylinder anymore it's a, a spring system um mm-hmm. uh put it built an entirely new arm um doing all of the the careful work to make sure the 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 wheel was perfectly square and yeah it's um working a treat now it's one of those things that i'm I'm, I'm wondering why i didn't take the time to do it in the past but you know how it is you get (laughs) something working but using him like it's sort of like i'd go through a whole week of using him and then somebody would come over and go to use him and be like how 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 do you get it to do this <laughs> it's just like i'm just used to the idiosyncrasies so yeah yeah he's um almost twice as heavy now with all of my fabrication work but um no the ne- next thing i need to do i'm i'm gonna upgrade to a glass platen on him um but i need to put a little um little platen shelf on the very bottom of mine uh before i do that because i don't want to have it just go straight to the front um, there's a classic move with glass platens that you'll actually have a very small shelf at the very bottom of it that the glass platen will rest against. Okay. Um, and it's just, it minimizes any shear stress that may happen over time um, mm-hmm. with the with the glass platen. Um, and yeah, that, that will help. Um, and I'm also going to be building, I got some tool arm stock. Boy, that is expensive to buy. It can be. I mean, forty mil square solid. <laughs> well, I, I just use I just use uh, tube. Yeah, well, I I was going to use tube, and then it's one of those things where it's like you just don't want that thing buckling at full speed. Um, well, yeah, but I mean, like with you'd be you'd be having to run ball. it run it pretty hard. But yeah, I um I got both. I only got like probably half a meter of forty mil square, but um. Yeah, I was I was a bit shocked at the price. It was about two thirds of my my total bill, and I bought lots of stuff at the the, the shop. Um, I got got some weird looks because it was a weird assortment of stuff. Because I knew I was going to be rebuilding Frankie, but I had, didn't yeah. really have a plan. 
and I didn't have any sketches or drawings or anything of how I was going to do it. So I'm just sort of like, I'll have some of these and a bit of this and <laughs> I'll get this length of threaded rod here and these bolts and these wing nuts. And and they're like, what are you doing? And it's like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> just just doing. I just know which road I'm taking, that's all. So, And I ended up using about a fifth of what I got. Um, so more tool arms in the future it gives me an excuse to finally get that um 12 inch contact wheel that i've been wanting so um i did get to test him properly um today though i did a heap more work on the sword neatening it up um prepping prepping it for its final bout of hand sanding that's going to be happening on it which i'm dreading it's a lot of hand sanding to do um working on a, a new slip joint fairly basic clean slip joint that somebody requested of me quite a while ago that i'm still trying to catch up on mm-hmm. um which is probably better for them because i'm much better at slip joints now than i was when they actually asked for it yeah <laughs> patience um, pays off yeah that's right and um the mallard finally sold as well in the yeah. since last episode um and i'm really happy with who it's gone to as well which is really nice because i I've never been in so much pain letting go of a project. I really didn't want to sell that one. I loved <laughs> it. It's the favorite, my favorite thing I've ever made. Um, yep. But I'm glad it's going to a good home. Um, and this weekend, I'm actually going to be um, hosting a segment of Can Iron, the mm. Canadian blacksmithing festival, which is digital this year because of the Rona. Yes, and I stupidly double booked myself. I would have been. Sam, l- listen, listen. Sam is a popular guy. Yes. Everyone wants a bit of big fudge. He's also a distracted guy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, it should be should be interesting. Um, luckily, with the time difference, it's not too uh, too horrendous, which is interesting considering I'm almost exactly on the opposite side of the planet to where it's going on. The, the wonders of modern technology. So, um, yeah, my uh, song of the week, I'm going back to a band I've had as one of my songs of the week fairly recently, and that's the Bare Naked Ladies. been listening to them a, a lot lately. I, I often tell people that um, you know you're an adult when Bare Naked Ladies lyrics make sense. <laughs> yep. that, that's, that's how you know. Because as, as a teen, you're like listening to the Bare Naked Ladies, you know, just, you know, chickity China, the Chinese chicken. Um, and you have no idea, you don't pay any attention to the lyrics. And then one day, all of a sudden you do and you realize that is a, that is a band with issues. Yes. Um, <laughs> they've seen some shit. Um, but the song of the week this week is humor of the situation, which is, uh, about reaching the point where you're just like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm done. You know, properly, properly done where you're just happy to just burn whatever bridges, need to be burned and walk the fuck away <laughs> um, yep. every, like we've, we've all had moments where we want to walk away from something but never have we like you probably have one or two moments in your whole life where you just you, you know it's like in rick and morty where he's like just dumps the bottle of gasoline he's like you know what i'm bored i'm out everybody out <laughs> so yeah that song's about that moment so. fair enough yeah, what about you, Sam? Been up oh, to? yeah, so um, for the last week I've had my good friend uh, and fellow blacksmith, Adam from Speargrass, Speargrass. Forge, 
down from the uh, Northern Territory, uh, and he's been hanging out in my shop doing a class with me on uh, learning how to make a Muso Bowie knife. Technically, we were just learning. I was teaching him how to make a through tang knife. We just decided to make it a Muso because it's me, and what else? At least, you, <laughs> at least you don't have to worry about people like with coronavirus. You don't have to worry about people coming from Northern Territory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've, we've got the uh, we've we've got that common in common between us and the Northern Territory. We've kept a pretty good lid on it. So um, it was. Plus, yeah, there's only like seven people there. So yeah, well, that's that's true. Yeah, um, you know, the population dipped dramatically when Adam came to us. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, yeah, no, so it was good. He hung out, um, with me for like five of the seven days he was down here. Um, and, uh, yeah, we made the Muso buoy. He ended up forging a Tanto on my live stream on Saturday, uh, that he got like most of the way finished before he left. Uh, it's not been heat treated yet. He's going to go home and do that himself. Um, and we also made a hammer together, which I uploaded the video um, or made the video public just before we started recording. So, um, just a quick video on, you know, me teaching Adam how to make a hammer. It wasn't really part of the class, uh, or anything like that. It was just something that we could do together that we could film and he wanted to make a hammer. So, you know, mm. he made a little French crossbeam and I made a two and a half pound rounder, which has now already been sold before I even put a handle on it. So, um, otherwise I also got the... Uh, Goliath Beetle and the little froggy Higonokami all finished up. Finally got my Rockshore patenting, patination uh, steps down. Mm-hmm. Took a couple in the, sal- of, in the couple copper salad bowl. That's it, yeah, in the, in, the, in the very, very rustic copper salad bowl. <laughs> but yeah, no, it came out really good. I was really happy with uh, the results I got. And the customer was really happy with the results I got, so I was um, I was over the moon to uh, have that finished. Oh, it's been weighing on my mind a great deal uh, in the last couple of weeks, so it's been it's good to finally get that done. That's going to be shipped off tomorrow or today, as it's be as we this has been uploaded. Hmm. Um, and yeah, like with Adam here, it's been really hard to do anything else because I've been kind of focusing on what we were going to be doing together and, and all that kind of stuff. Gazing lovingly into each other's eyes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, just all the homo. <laughs> Hashtag. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> but I've also got the one Dowie hammer in coming on this weekend. Um, I'll actually, as this episode goes live, I will be packing to drive to one Dowie. Uh, it's about two and a half hours away, uh, and it's uh, it's basically all of the local Bla- Perth blacksmiths. Um, all three of you. All three of us. Uh, actually, there's quite a few of us that are going. Uh, it's actually being sponsored by Gamaco this time, so um, it's going to be a pretty big event, and it should be pretty fun, but it's uh, stressing me out a little bit because I've had no time to prepare anything. I was originally going to be taking three knives to get judged for my full voting membership, but I don't have three knives that are like of that standard in the house because <laughs> I sold them all. Um, so yeah, that's not happening. Uh, and instead I'm just going to be going up there and swinging a hammer and hopefully forgetting the rest of my responsibilities until I get home so that I can, you know, actually relax for once. Yeah. Uh, cause I have to work on my sword. I've seen that you've been doing a lot of good work on your sword and it's made I don't me know realize if it's good. That- it's work. 
It's well, you know the grind's damn clean, and it's uh, my first first time doing a fuller and first time doing a sword. I'm pretty happy with it. Oh man, you, you're killing it, and it's making me feel incredibly fucking useless. Because got to get I've, you working somehow, Sam. I've I've had my for I've had the the sword like three quarters of the way forged for the last month, and I haven't done anything on it. So I've got to uh, I've really got to pull my thumb out and and start working on it again. Uh, I've also Wait got a couple to see of the commissions. handle. You're gonna shit yourself. <laughs> yeah, I've also got a couple of commissions that I need to work on as well, which is making life interesting. I really need to learn to say the word no. For anyone listening, I'm very sorry. If you do want to order something off me, I am not taking commissions, and I haven't been taking commissions. Or I haven't been supposed to be taking commissions for quite a while. Man, my books have been closed since May last year, and for some reason. I still keep taking them. I don't know how it oh, happens. Yeah. <laughs> they, just, they just appear. I wake up and I'm like, what the fuck happened yesterday? Did I just take on another commission? The, the worst part for me is like, it's normally people that I know, like in real life friends that contact mm. me and they're like, hey man, can you make this for me? Mm. And, and your whole life to- slows down just a little bit more. Yeah, and you're talking about it, and it sounds like a really cool idea, and you're, like, really excited to get working on it, because it sounds like such a cool thing to do, and then you realize that that's just added to the fucking list that's already six miles long. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I regret it. <laughs> but then you can't tell them that you don't want to do it, because <laughs> you feel bad, because you've already taken the commission. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's my life at this at this current stage. Um, but my song of the week isn't really a song. It's, it's kind of a song. Um, it's actually a, um, an Irish lament. Uh, and it was sung kind of off the cuff by Hosier during one of his recent recordings. And it's called The Humours of Whiskey. And, like, I'd heard this before, but when I heard Hosier sing this lament, it sounded ethereal. Like, if you have to listen to it in complete silence. And, like, I'd highly suggest wearing headphones, because his voice makes it just that much more He does impactful. have a very special voice. Yeah, and because he's Irish, you know, he has that <laughs> Irish lilt to it, and it just... Oh, it's everything. And, um, yeah, it's, it's only one minute long. It's, it's, it's only a, a short Irish poem, but, uh, it does get the blood stirring a little bit. You know what admit. does that, there's a, there's an Irish poem, spoken word poem that does that for me as well. And it's the Rocky Road to Dublin. Oh yeah. Yep. When that's performed right, boy, that hits the right, it, it, it hits the strings for me. Yeah. 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 No, I... <laughs> And, and this is the thing, like, there's a lot of that kind of Celtic-inspired poetry and music that really gets that way. Honestly, ho- like, the, the way Hosier sings it, it sounds almost like you'd hear it sung by a siren through a misty forest. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> it's just, it's one of those things. Even though the lyrics mean, like, are, are completely, you know, weird compared to the tone. Uh... <laughs> It, it is just a spectacular bit of, uh, a bit of, uh, oral, you know, kind of. Hopefully Jake can find that on Spotify. He can. I found it. Oh, good. There you uh, go, Jake. It's, it's, actually, set. it's actually labeled as an episode, not a song. Cause okay. it was, you know, like part of the recording, uh, studio set. 
Uh, and it's all acapella. There's no music behind it or anything. It is just amazing. And it's on YouTube as well. So mm. It went viral for a while because, of course... It's it Hoja. Yeah, pretty much. Mm. And it's amazing. Mm. Anyway, with that being yeah. said... We've uh, got uh, emails or inspirations. Uh, let's let's switch it up. Let's let's switch it up. Let's do inspirations. Let's do emails today. <laughs> <laughs> well, who's been inspiring you, Alex? Oh, I wouldn't be surprised if you and I have the same inspiration this week. Um, mm-hmm. He's actually been your inspiration before, um, probably twice. But, but this time, he's my inspiration. It's uh, Jordan Lamoth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Pesh Cubs dagger that he's been doing the, um mm. not only is the damascus freaking perfect on it but those grinds on it are redonkulous but Absolutely. it wasn't a, despite the fact that the, the grinds were redonkulously good um it it wasn't that that inspired me it was his shaping of the handle because um, the knife, if you haven't seen it yet, which I highly recommend you go and see it, and you will be able to see it in person if you're in America and going to Blade Show because it's going to be on display there. It's a frame tang construction, which has been done masterfully. Um, mm-hmm. But the frames, uh, the sides, uh, outside edges of the frame itself that you would see as in place of the tang are hollow ground the entire way around. And the butt of the handle is actually flared um, out Mm. either side of this hollow ground like you know mock tang um, all while being heirloom fit like beautifully heirloom fit and it's just it's all curves and and graceful lines and beautiful proportions and perfection it just it's the sort of thing that I I, I can feel his frustration through the photos that photos are not doing it justice. It's something that you have to see in person and watch the light glint off it as it as you move around it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would love to have a chance to see it in person. I know I never will, and that makes me sad. But I um, I get to see the photos of our Instagram, and it is, it is a marvelous, marvelous piece of work. Um, and all of the things that make it marvelous are done subtly. It's not in yeah. your face marvelous. It's it's um, it's beautiful and it's silence. A bit like the, how you were describing the song that Hoja's mm-hmm. saying. It's, it's sort of it's remarkable is the best word I can I can have to describe it. Yeah, it, nothing about it is um, nothing about it is overstated. Yeah. Like, it is. It's very subtle, but it is very well put together. It's. It's. I, I like that. It is. It takes somebody with a keen eye to realize just how amazing the work is, and it frustrates me that there's going to be probably hundreds of people at Blade Show that walk past and go, "Oh, cool," and, and that's, <laughs> yeah, that's it. it. You know pick it up and, and wave it around and, and not treat it with the, the respect that it deserves. But I hope that he has people who he looks up to, like I'm looking up to him, hope he has people who he looks up to pick it up, look at it, remark upon its amazingness, and I hope he gets the fizz from that. I know Kyle I, Roy is going there. I'm pretty sure he'd, he'd just go nuts if he saw it, if he absolutely. hasn't already. 
So, um, yeah, well done, Jordan. That was that really, really impressed me. I, I hope that I can do work a hundredth of that quality one day. Yeah. Um, how about you, Big Fudge? Yeah, no, so I, I didn't have the same one as you, although I have to admit that um, Jordan's work is amazing. And you can find him at Jordan Lamoth Blades on Correct. Instagram. Correct. Um, but no, my, um, my inspiration this week is actually a Mastersmith, I want to say Mastersmith, but I don't want to be wrong, I'm just going to double check. Not after uh, the incident. Not after the incident, yes. Uh, it actually doesn't say, so I can't say for sure, but anyway, he, if he's not a Mastersmith, he will be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um... And he specializes in making uh, Feather Damascus. Um, he makes all different kinds of feather, but he also makes these stunningly artistic handles for his blades with a lot of, like, silver wire inlay and stuff like that in his pieces. So, you know, recently I've been thinking about, like, upping my handle work and I kind of came across a couple of his pieces that I was really enamored with. And the, the maker in question is, uh, Kevin Casey. Uh, he goes under K Casey knives. So it's K C A S E Y knives, uh, all one word. And basically, yeah, everything that he does is absolutely stunning. It's it, a lot of it is really like simple in design, but the, the way that he pulled it off, is uh just beyond beautiful and he's made folders and stuff like that in the past as well but specifically his feather work is incredible and uh, he actually has a, a custom uh press set up specifically to cut feathers like that's all it does which I find really interesting because he gets really repeatable, really good results. And it's funny because he doesn't do a lot of the traditional feather, which is the, you know, feather W's. He really likes his straight layer feather, but he makes it so much more visually appealing than you would think. Alex is furiously looking at all of his stuff right now. <laughs> mm. But yeah, no, the one that caught my eye was the uh, the most recent one that he's done, which was the moose, the silver moose inlaid into the, uh, I think it's bog oak or blackwood, uh, it's blackwood, uh, blackwood handle. Are they moose? They're buffalo, aren't they? No, it's moose. The most recent video photo. It's the oh, moose. Oh, the mo most recent one. Yeah. Yeah, right. No, you, you mean the, yeah, the, the um, carved... Yeah, the bronze bronze handle. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, that was some stunning work. Yeah, well, that's actually that wasn't him. That was um, done by JC Die. I've always tried doing those like inset handle scales, and they mm. are hard to do right. They are, and and yeah, I've only done it like twice, and I think both times I didn't quite pull off what I wanted. The one time that it did kind of work was on that karambit that I did, the Damascus mm, karambit. You did that very well. It came, it came out a lot better than I uh, than I expected. It was very comfortable, which was nice. Yeah. 
but yeah, so K Casey knives, uh, on Instagram, Kevin Casey, amazing Smith. Again, not sure if he holds a rating in the ABS at all. If he's a part of the ABS, I may be getting him confused with someone else. So don't hold me to anything. <laughs> and maybe and if he listens to this, he can get in touch with you and let you know. Yeah. Kevin, if you're listening to this, let me know. Am I wrong? Yes. Oh, well. It's time for emails. Yes. So our first email is from... Um, it's actually from, through the Instagram. It was from Paul Borden. Uh, he says, Hi, guys. I'm still loving your podcast. My knife making is improving thanks to your show. Recently bought a 2x72 grinder and been using Sam's push stick method, for which, uh, which for the most part seems to be working, but isn't there always a but? I keep destroying the tips of my knives when grinding. Is it a case of too much pressure there? Should I leave the tip until the rest of the blade is nearly done? Any advice? Much appreciated using 1084 grinding preheat treat. Thanks, Paul. Glad mm. you're liking the show, Paul. Thank you very much for the question. I know what I would say, but um, since it's your technique, I'll... I'll well, it's, it's it not off. my technique. I didn't develop the push stick technique. I no, but I mean, he, he got it from watching you, so it's your fault it's going wrong. <laughs> um, I, I would suspect, if you're following the instruction as it was given in my video, which is to leave the push stick in place and to pull the blade through, um, that you're probably pulling your uh, the blade hand out as you're pulling... The blade along because obviously you need to pull the blade out slightly to follow the curve of the tip uh you can't just pull in one straight line you can but the, it takes a little bit different of an approach to do that um so as you're pulling out you're probably pulling out a little too far and going a little too aggressively because when you're grinding uh, any kind of material the less surface contact the faster the material gets removed so as you get towards the tip, your tip is going to be removed much faster than the rest of the blade. So if you're pushing at exactly the same pace the whole way along, as you get to the tip, you're just going to take that whole thing off. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I would probably say that you're, A, pulling your hand out a little bit too far when you're coming around that curve, and you're also probably putting just that little bit too much pressure on the blade. Hmm. You need to sort of... Um look at how much width of uh, blade is being pressed against the belt when you first start your stroke and um, reduce your pressure by a percentage of how wide the amount that you, the, the section that you're pushing now is to compared to that original amount. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And uh, in order to like try and stem this off, instead of pulling all the way through until the tip comes off the edge of the belt, Instead, once the tip comes onto the platen, like once the tip comes across the, that uh, far edge, and you still have two inches of blade on the on the grinder, pull backwards, right? Rather than pulling sideways, pull the blade off the belt backwards. Uh, and that way you'll actually minimize that amount of contact that you're having with the belt. Because the other thing, of course, is the surface contact isn't just down to the steel, it's also down to the belt. If you use the corner of a belt... It's going to cut in like a like a you know like cut off disc in an angle grinder. As anybody so, who has ever had a slip up has known. Yeah, and and that's how you get two inch bite. If you rock around the the platen, the edge of the belt will cut in a lot faster than the flat of the belt. Mm. So if you're pulling your tip right across that corner, 
especially with any kind of pressure, it's going to immediately cut that tip off because, you know, you've got not a, not a lot of steel and also a very, very small amount of surface contact on the belt itself. Hmm. Hopefully that helps. Let me know. Yeah, absolutely. Our next email comes from Malin. And he says, hey, guys, I've been enjoying the podcast. It makes the drive to and from work more enjoyable. This is a long email, so apologies in advance. I have received my first knife request from a customer. I'll likely just charge material costs. He is after a sailing knife, which is essentially a fixed blade, full tang sheep's foot knife. He has given me a lot of creative freedom, but had a few requests. He had a friend who does lapidary work, and they found some agatized man fern in the Loon River together. His friend is going to shape the agatized man fern to make the scales. The client wants a bolster and metal at the butt of the tang. I'll either do brass or wrought. So the stone scales sit between the metal. I'll upload a rough sketch of what I'm talking about in case my description is vague. But it's pretty, he's, you know, he's got a yeah, basically pommel end and a bolster end and scale in the middle. Um, he says, whilst I think it will look good, I have concerns on how to fix the scales given how brittle the material will be. The option I have come up with so far are drill through the scales and pin them with epoxy. Drilling and putting a pin through such brittle material seems like a recipe for disaster. I imagine it would crack pretty easy. And have holes running through it um, could create a weak point. Or just use epoxy on the scales, which gives no mechanical fixing and could end up with them falling off. Or drilling holes through the tang and partial hole in the underside of the scales that line up with either pin and then epoxy the scales and just uh, epoxying them on. I think this will be the best solution as it would give better bond between the tang and scales without jeopardizing the scales drilling through them. I'd be interested in your thoughts, whether you think the whole concept is destined for failure or if you have a better solution for fixing the scales that I haven't thought of. Sam's going to like this next bit. I also went on a YouTube frenzy this weekend whilst sick and watched Alex's video about strops on his YouTube channel. In the video, he mentioned that he strops with an angle slightly steeper than the bevel of the knife. This contradicts what I was taught when it comes to stropping. As an apprentice carpenter, I was taught to strop at an angle that is slightly less than the bevel of your chisel plane blade so that it doesn't round off your edge on the soft leather compound. Mm -hmm. there, there, is, <laughs> there is more than one way to skin a cat and not always a right or wrong way to do something. I would be interested to hear Alex's reasoning behind his strop technique willing to give it a try next time to see if he gives him if it gives improved results all the best guys keep up the good work malin trickett thank you very much malin so i have an, a, an an alternate option of how you could fix the stone handle scales in although it might be i don't know what your level of craftsmanship is if this is your first um request from a customer it doesn't necessarily mean you haven't been making knives for yourself for a long time but um, a technique used in uh, folder scales a lot is to actually have, um, when you've got your bolster um, at either end, um, you actually taper them so dovetail. that, uh, yeah, it's kind of like a dovetail slot uh, and it m creates a mechanical fit to hold the scale in place. You can then relieve the underside of the scale 
uh, and use epoxy in there um, and then the dovetail provides the mechanical fit uh, getting that looking nice and clean is a, it's a whole skill set on its own um, but yeah depending on like I, I have no exp I don't know about you Sam I have mm. no experience with working with agate of any kind let alone mm. agate how agatized manfern so I don't know how brittle it really would be as as far as agate goes like I haven't worked with it so much like I've, I've done some lapidary work with um various stones not agate in specific um but stone tends to act the same in most cases unless you're talking about really chalky stone or something like that and i believe agate's quite tough um quite hard at least um agatized man fern on the other hand <laughs> it sounds like some form of petrified wood like um which is usually famed for its hardness yes um and the the thing is you can make stone handles like there i i know several bladesmiths who have made stone scales for handles um keith flutter who's a journeyman smith in the abs and actually um a guy that i've spoken with quite a bit um he made a knife with fossilized T-Rex bone handle, like a dinosaur bone handle, which is fossilized uh, bone is literally just rock. Um, and yeah, the, the, the methods that you laid out are some of the methods. Drilling it isn't actually an issue. Like it doesn't create that much of a weak point as long as your glue up is good, right? If you've got full glue contact and the scale supporting it, you'll have no problem. Uh, a lot of makers who make uh, mammoth ivory handles uh, know that, like, Jerry Fisk has pounded nails into uh, a, a piece of wood with a mammoth ivory handle. And mammoth ivory is incredibly brittle. Just so make sure you that you do actually prepare your surfaces correctly, maybe do some relieving yeah. work and things so that you do get that maximum contact. Yeah, maximum support. And the other thing is drilling it, like, as long as you're wet drilling it with a, you know, relatively sharp masonry bit, um, then you're normally going to be fine. If you're worried about a mechanical connection, like, you could just epoxy them on and epoxy some pins in, or you could, you know, do any of the other things. Uh, dovetailing is a really good thing. Unfortunately, dovetailing does tend to mean fitting to the bolsters rather than fitting to the scale. And without lapidary equipment, it may be difficult to shape the scale. Mm. And so therefore you might be screwing around with the bolsters, which may make a, a whole mess. Um, but yeah, if, if you want a mechanical connection and you don't want to go the route of dovetailing, uh, my advice would be Corby bolts or loveless bolts. Uh, yeah. Which is literally just a, a countersunk, um, like double-ended screw that you screw in and then grind the heads off and they look like rivets and plus if you are... use the loveless bolts you can kind of get a little two-tone action going on yeah depending yeah, on get... the color of the stone might look cool exactly so uh yeah in the case of loveless bolts it's a hollow tube a hollow threaded tube and a screw mm. and so you get like that that double tone effect like alex said so yeah it's it's um those two are like mechanical connections that you can use that will put additional pressure on the outside of the scale because it'll actually squeeze the scale in. And actually, you don't need clamps when you use Corby's or uh, or Loveless because they act as clamps themselves. 
Um, you could yeah, also um, use. Um, actually, I've seen Niels Vandenberg use this on epoxyless handles, where he actually uses hollow pins, and mm-hmm. then actually does uh, uses like a punch tool to rivet over the the outside edges. Yeah, flare of them the, out. Yeah, flare them out, and that creates a, a good mechanical hole, and that would probably work well on stone because of the, com- the compressive abilities of it. Yeah, provided you can you can form that flared hole in the in the rock, do it. Cheap cheap um, diamond burrs would probably um, get yeah. you through that that process once you drill the hole. Yeah, yeah. So th- those are three mechanical connection options that you could look at uh, for a Siemens knife. Hollow tubes might be useful for lanyards as well. So uh, that's something to think about. Mm. But. Um, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, uh, I would want a mechanical connection of some kind. I would not trust epoxy, um, not over the life of the material of the piece. Um, sheer stress on that kind of stuff. If you drop it, it's likely to break. I don't um, care what the material is. I never trust epoxy for the life of the piece. That's why no, we talked, did, did a whole segment on peening pins. There's <laughs> there's only there's only two situations where I don't put a pin in my blades, and that's for sloyd knives, like wood carving knives. And some kitchen knives. Yeah, you do have to um, ask yourself what what is the knife going to be used for as well? Like really, precisely. Yeah, yeah. If if it's a sailor's knife, there's a good chance it's going to be bashed around. It's going to be dropped in know, salt like, water. Dropped in salt water. That kind of thing. Uh, which is one of the reasons I would say use brass, not wrought iron, for your uh, bolster material. But yeah, you're expecting it to be a using knife, a working knife, and there's nothing wrong with using a very high quality stone handle material for the handle in a working knife, but you want to make sure that it is mechanically connected to the tang somehow. Mm. So that if that epoxy does let go, if you're not using a high grade epoxy especially, um, then you at least have those mechanical connections and you can't get much more secure than Corby's or Loveless. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I personally don't use them because I don't use material that requires that also, extra amount of. Force. They're also harder to get in Australia. They are, yeah. So, well, loveless bolts um, you can kind of make yourself, but yeah. yeah. And I mean, uh, I think you can buy Corby's from uh, Nordic Edge. Uh, I think they still have them. Do they? I, knew they had, I think they had them when they were Creative Man. I may All be right. wrong. There you go. Um, I know Gamico stocked them for a while as well, so. Um, but yeah, so they're, they're a secure and relatively easy thing to do. Uh, I think you can buy the stepped drill bits for them as well, relatively inexpensively. Or make them yourself pretty easily. Yeah, 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 that's it. Although so, when um, you're working with masonry bits, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. Although, like, depending on the hardness of the rock, you'll probably be able to use a conventional drill bit to uh, finalize holes. Like if you pre-drill with a masonry bit the hole through... And then use a Corby countersink to uh, to sink the pocket. To uh, be fair, that. though, a Corby bolt does not require a ninety degree shelf nope. on the inside. So, so true. Just more room for epoxy. Exactly. Yeah. So, so to move um, on to your next topic, <laughs> which I know Sam's going to sit here looking smug the entire time. Um, one clarification that I should probably have made in the video is that. Um, People who disagree with that technique tend to sort of make out like I'm lifting the blade up to like 45 degrees when I'm stropping it. I'm, I'm not. It's a it's a very slight increase past the angle of the bevel. Uh, very, very slight. And it's usually on a sort of a roll action because I find that it helps pull the wire edge off. 
if you tilt it too much, you will, of course, roll over your, your edge. Um, but if you actually have a... Uh, and if you're going to... You said you're going to give this a try. So do do give this a try. Um, get a really bright spotlight. The brightest spotlight or torch or something that you have. And shine it on the edge of the knife as you are doing that technique. And you will actually... Um, it, you'll catch the uh, the glint of the wire edge actually pulling off um, when you do it. Uh, and stripping that wire edge off... Um, it just it gets really sharp edges like i know there's a lot of books and things out there but there used to be books that said that you'd sail off the edge of the world so i'm i'm more of a um try it and see kind of guy and i mean i'm posting videos all the time proving that my edges are insanely sharp so that's all i can really say i've got evidence to to show that my stropping technique works so yeah i mean i alex and i make fun of the fact that we disagree over his and my stropping techniques mm. but, but we both get crazy edges exactly realistically at the end of the day if you're getting the results you're what you want then you know good because um, it's uh it's a thing that like everybody runs into sam and i particularly because we happen to have a show so we get hit with this a lot a lot of people yep. like to say hey the book i just read said this and you're <laughs> saying that and so you must be wrong but the the fact is, if you can do it and, and and show people the results, then who cares what the book says? Precisely. Yeah. I mean, um, I will caveat my technique, uh, you know, of of being lower than the bevel of the, the angle that were, at which you sharpened, is partly because of tradition. Uh, obviously, because that was how I was taught sharpening woodworking tools, like you yourself were, um, as you mentioned. But also, um, I have found when teaching people sharpening is that they will always go above the angle that I tell them to use, uh-huh. right? If it, for Especially for beginner sharpeners, if I tell them to use 22 and a half ang- uh, uh, degrees of sharpening angle and show them how to get it, they will still go to 30, 35. And so if I tell them to strop at an angle lower than the bevel angle that they sharpened at, hmm. they're likely to either hit at the bevel angle that they hit, or even maybe slightly over. So, you know, I'm allowing for that lowest common denominator of the person that may not, you know, do it correctly, uh, in order to not have them literally sharpen something at 45 degrees and think they're going to get an edge. Hmm. Um, That being said, I have, you know, like, done tests with various stropping techniques and stuff like that and came to the conclusion that this one was the best purely because of the results I was getting. But when you get down to the nitty-gritty of it, sharpness is only as good as the job it has to do. Yeah, right. and it does depend on the knife. Yeah, and you can get a mirror-fine edge. You can get a ridiculous hair-whittling edge um, using strops, and that's great, but it also is unnecessary in 90% of the knives that you will use. Mm. Um, most of my knives don't go past the 1200 grit edge and that's like the, at the upper limit, um, because I use them for hunting and, you know, on my pocket knives and stuff. The only knives that really go into the super high are either my wood, ca- wood carving knives or a straight razor. <laughs> yeah. Everything else stays, you know, at that 300 bess, you know, 250 bess level, uh, which is, you know, working sharpness. Yeah. 
And I mean, it comes down to it's sort of um, the reason that there's so many different sharpening techniques out there is because it's a thing that you can really go down the rabbit hole of of perfecting. Um, no matter how good you think you are, you can always get better. Uh, well, like it. like Sam said, there's a limit on practicality, and it's really down quite low on that scale. <laughs> You can apex a blade on a 240 grit stone and it will pop hairs off your arm. Yep. If you know what you're doing and your technique is good, that is absolutely possible with no stropping. Mm -hmm. It's phenomenal what you can achieve if your technique is right. Um, But there are pitfalls. And one of those pitfalls, especially when you are trying to do things quickly, um, I, I hate wire edges giving you that false sense of security that you've got something that's really sharp. And so I like to pull my wire edges off, and that's that's why I go a little bit past the angle. It's a very controlled maneuver. I'm not just you know blindly going past it. And I know it contradicts a lot of people, but you know when when you're doing floating paper slices and and hanging rope chops with ease, it doesn't really matter what the book says, what other people say. Uh, I've seen Sam perform sharpness tests. I've seen Sam win awards for his sharpness tests. <laughs> um, and the thing is, you know, I'm, everybody follows my Instagram. You know, you, there's certain things you can't fake. So it's find what works for you. Uh, and what you're saying is how, like, you were taught one way, but you're going to give it a try the other way. That's awesome. That means that you're open-minded, which means you're going to find the way that suits you and what you do rather than just blindly follow something that you read in a book or watching a YouTube video. And that's awesome. Uh, whether it's me, whether it's Sam, whether it's anybody should always do that and find what works best for you. Yeah, for sure. So, Thank you for your questions. Yeah, it's a good question. Hopefully we all learned from that. Hmm. Uh, and our final email is from Heidi Stamets. I wonder if she's related to Paul Stamets. I don't know who Paul Stamets is. Or well, I'm a mycology nerd. So uh, Paul Stamets is like the god of mycology. Right. Yeah. That would be interesting. Yeah, he's mm, he's an interesting guy. But uh, email us back, Heidi. Let us know. <laughs> she says, hey, guys, uh, my do the thing for the Forgecast challenge this month was putting retractable caster wheels, 35 US for a set of four on eBay, on my home-built coal forge. With the help of the local blacksmithing club, I built a forge last summer. I don't have a permanent place for it, so I drag it out of the barn and into the driveway every time I want to use it, and it's pretty heavy. Uh, and I'm... Also, eight months pregnant with our fourth child. Uh, I would I would bet that my forge time will be limited for the rest of the year. But now I have caster wheels on, I can move the forge itself around with one hand. And then I can pull the wheels back up to make my forge steady during use. Oh, there are those retractable ones. Cool, cool, cool. I forgot she said that. Uh, thanks for your encouragement. I finally made my forge easier to use when I am able to swing a hammer regularly again. I also have a question about forge welding. My blacksmithing instructor and I were having a discussion this weekend about using iron mountain flux in the making of Damascus. Do you know if the iron particles in the iron mountain flux leave visible lines in Damascus or change the final product in any other way? Is there a foolproof flux for making layered Damascus? Thank you for sharing your knowledge, Heidi. Thank you very much, Heidi. Yeah. Oh, to the short answer is yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You can see it because it's straight iron, basically. It's not really steel. 
So it etches yeah. different. You can see it, and you wouldn't want to have it on a hardened edge. Like well, that's it. Then I, I've I have done a little bit of testing with doing Iron Mountain with Damascus, and a it doesn't flow very well, so it doesn't actually <laughs> reach the heart of the billet, and so you'll find it hard to weld with. And even when you do get the weld, even um, I didn't notice that it was showing up as a line so much. Maybe because I didn't use as much as you didn't you get it down need. into the yeah. Yeah, that's it. But what I did notice is that there are tiny little particles of iron all the way through those weld seams. And in most Damascus, your weld seams are going to be crisscrossing your edge at the best of times. And in a normal billet, that can cause tiny little weak spots, um, you know, which is why some Damascus blades will have that toothy edge, quote unquote, because those weld seams are crossing the line. What I found with the Iron Mountain Flux was that those iron particles were creating, like, chip-out areas. Like, they would literally just pop out of the Matrix, or they would soft... They were so soft that they would just dent. And, you know, I, I cut a couple of things with this test blade and then cut a piece of paper and it was like... <laughs> <laughs> just running down the... So, yeah, I, I would not recommend Iron Mountain Flux. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are certain things you just can't drop out. <laughs> Um, they, um, in terms of a foolproof flux, um, I'd say it comes down more to technique because really you don't need flux at all. But I'll tell you what, if there is such a thing as as, as close to a foolproof flux as you can get, that sure weld mm. is is getting pretty damn good. That that stuff's pretty amazing. I, I have to say, um, of what I've seen of the sure weld so far, I am quite enamored, so... Yeah. Uh, it flows really easily at relatively low temperatures. It coats really well, uh, and it flows out of the the uh, the material quite easily as well, which is quite important because obviously you need to clear it in order to get welding surfaces. Which I will say, if you do have little ones running around and you're doing a forge weld, um, yeah, that stuff it's, sprays. Yeah, especially if you're hitting it with a hammer. Like if you're doing it with a press, it's not too bad, but with a hammer, yeah, I wouldn't recommend having people <laughs> around. And if they are, wear bloody safety equipment because it does spray. Yes, absolutely. But um, I mean, I'll- as far as like a foolproof method, uh, the sealed billet, sealed clean billet. material. Yeah, and, clean and, material, flat material, sealed billet. And Joey Van der Steegit. And Joey Van der Steegit, that's yeah. right. <laughs> you can do that to a sealed billet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Steel forge welds really well when it's liquid. <laughs> it's just basically woots at that point. Um, mm, pretty but much. The uh, the Iron Mountain is, um, a lot of people would hear that you can't really, if you've used Iron Mountain for your to repair or or, or create a Damascus billet, you wouldn't can't use it on a hardened edge. Um, it's I I use it and have it in my collection now. Thank you, uh, Jared, for sending that over again. I can't thank you yes, enough. Thank you, Jared. Um, I use it to recover a billet that looks like it's on the way out because I would rather take that Damascus and then jacket it Sanmai style around a monosteel core and be able to use it then have to throw it away because of a failure that was spreading badly. Because mm-hmm. after going yeah, through all that work into, on a piece of Damascus, you you want to be able yeah. to use it. Or turn it into fittings or, you know, various other things you can do with Damascus other than make blades out of it. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, yeah I mean, Iron Mountain definitely has its place. And, and it's great for laminates. Like, it's amazing for doing, uh, like, butt welds and, and um, fish mouth welds and stuff like that. I've been using it to make, uh, like, welded faced hammers and uh, welded edge kiridashi, like doing mm. Nimai 
Kiranaki. Nice and sticky too. Yeah, incredibly sticky, and because of the uh, the sintered iron when it uh, when it gets up to temperature, that that iron acts like um, we, we keep talking about using the little sharp stick in the forge to test mm-hmm. if it's welded. Because there's such a small surface area, it welds really quickly. That's what happens with that little iron powder in there. So um, yeah, definitely useful for that, but I would not you recommend it for Damascus. Yeah. All right. So with inspirations and emails out of the way, that brings us in. To tool time. Tool time. And today's tool time is coming at you thanks to Nordic Edge. Be sure to visit nordicedge.com.au to stock up on all of their delicious knife-making goodies today. And this week on Tool of the Week, we're talking about soapstone, sometimes called engineer's chalk. Very, very different to normal chalk. Yes. Normal chalk is virtually useless to a blacksmith. Yeah, unless you have a whiteboard or a blackboard. Or a blackboard. It's good good for writing on blackboards. Don't write on your steel with it. So um, basically what happens is um, as soon as chalk is exposed to large amounts of heat, it basically sort of crumbles to a powder and falls off. Yeah, it just gets blown away. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to watch it happen. It just disintegrates on hot mm-hmm. steel soapstone however stays perfectly clear uh, it's yeah, not until forge scale builds up to blow it off that it um it disappears yeah and i will say that not all engineers chalks are made the same oh god um, like i've bought ones from bunnings and stuff that looked like soapstone they acted like soapstone but they behaved exactly the same way as standard chalk when i put them in the forge mm. Um, I actually ended up buying, uh, Alex and I both have the same soapstone, um, holders, which are little like extendo things that we got off eBay for <laughs> chips. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, um, they'll hold on during the heat and they also, they're really easy to use. Um, I fa- find that I'm using them all the time for marking edges. Like I'll actually run the soapstone down the edge of my blade to give me some contrast when I'm looking for twists and warps mm. um, because it gives me contrast against the black of the blade. Um, whereas if you're just looking at a straight edge, sometimes you can't see whether or not it's twisted. Um, but it's also really useful for like marking, uh, especially if you're using a gas forge and a coal forge, a charcoal forge, you can rub it off really That's easy. That's right, yeah. But um, you can also use it to mark a length. Like, you know, you, you want two inches, you can mark two inches with a soapstone, stick it in the forge, pull it out, and you can still see the, the soapstone. Yeah, that's right. And they last so, yeah. an insanely long time. Like, they, they sell them to you. When you get them on eBay and things, you get, like, a 24-pack. And you'll <laughs> be using forever. one stick of that for about three years. <laughs> unless unless you're me, in which case you shatter, like, six in the first Oh, day. they shatter so easily. It's crazy. Yeah, I I have shards of soapstone all over the shop. And I just I just pick up the shards and use them. Because <laughs> every time I've gone to use the actual pen thing, I end up putting it somewhere that ends up getting a hammer put on it or something. And it just breaks. <laughs> I actually hate the little pen things that the, the, uh, are commonly they're sold in because it always wants to slide back on itself and retract. Yeah. I really need to just get off my butt and um, make one of the Dan Moss ones that he was going on about trying to get everyone to make a while back. Yeah, yeah. He was handing me about it. Or the John, John Rigoni style. I want to make the John Rigoni style one. It's very pretty. Haven't seen it. You'll have to send it to me. 
No, they're very they're very good. I like it. Yeah, but it's a phenomenally useful thing to have um, for any sort of blacksmithing work. Uh, great for writing on your anvil too. But if there is any oil on your anvil, it will not write on it. No, at all. So it does not do well in moisture or, or oily surfaces very well at all. So uh, dry and degreased surfaces, really. <laughs> like you know, fresh out of a forge, really. That's the perfect way to degrease something. Per- yeah, that stick is it in your the forge. Best. <laughs> So, speaking of being in the forge, our topic of the week is force multiplication because a lot of people, I mean, we've talked about in the past that whole fallacy that you see a lot of newbies in blacksmithing do of, oh, I'm going to use the biggest hammer possible. And a lot of times when people start out the right way and they're starting with a small hammer, they they have to work so hard just to move like a 10 mil bit of square and they think, oh, I couldn't ever move something as big as like inch round because I just don't mm-hmm. have it in me. Uh, and so the the common belief is the only way to increase the amount of power that you're hitting with or twisting with or whatever, shaping your steel in whatever way, is to start power tooling up, power hammers, presses, things like that. And we've talked about both of those things in the past. But the fact is, there are a lot of uh, the laws of physics, essentially, that are on your side in a blacksmith shop. And blacksmiths over the centuries have known this and can perform incredible feats of moving steel without anything more than a two-pound hammer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the the first one that we should address before we move on to some of the other stuff is handle length. Mm-hmm. A a two pound hammer on a four inch handle will not do the same amount of work as a two pound hammer on a fourteen inch handle. And that, my friends, is called leverage. Give me <laughs> exactly. a give me a lever long enough, and I will move the earth. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but so, yeah, no, um, we, seriously, we, handle length is important. Yeah, and and when it comes to hammers, the shape of it is very important. And the thing that most people call a rounding hammer, uh, because of Brian Brazil, uh, is actually for a process called turning, which is uh, used by farriers quite a lot. Uh, and that is to actually perform a bend on the short edge of something of a bar Mm -hmm. which actually requires a significant amount more force and so they came up with a hammer that has a flat side on one side and a rounded side on the other because the rounded side focuses all of the force of your blow into one small part of the hammer face when you Mm -hmm. strike and that allows you to actually with the same swing hit with more force but you're hitting that with that force in a smaller area and so yes. you can focus it on a short edge and uh, apply an, the, the required amount of force to actually turn, say, a horseshoe. Um, and so there are all different types of peens on hammers, and any type of peen is basically a force multiplier. Sometimes yep. it's rounded peen, like on a, a ball peen hammer, and that is a force multiplier that spreads in all directions at once. And there are cross peens which spread up and down, and there are straight peens which spread left and right. There are diagonal peens, both um, left and right left diagonal and right. peens, yep. um, and basically they are force multiplying in one particular direction or in one one style of direction. So you can uh, sort of simulate the action of a peen 
with an anvil. And a lot of people sort of, they look at an anvil and they, they never take the time to realize why an anvil has the shapes on it that it does. Um, the back of your horn, or the top, I should say, of your horn, is itself a large cross pin. Mm-hmm. And if you actually work steel on top of that curved surface, you are focusing the force of your blow into a smaller surface area and thus increasing the amount of force that you hit with. Yeah, you'll often see farriers actually, to come back to farriers, using the rounding side of their hammer and the horn Mm. to provide drawing dies. Basically, yeah, basically drawing dies for material when they're drawing out for making a shoe. Um, Yeah. Uh, one of and- my um, students was, uh, he's uh, only 15, wiry little guy, he's, um, but he was trying to draw the reins out on a pair of tongs. And um, anybody that's ever tried that for the first time, new, well, when they're new to it, they think, well, I'm never making tongs again. This is awful. Because <laughs> drawing out steel, let's face it, is the worst. Yes. It's just the worst. But I showed him that you can actually hold the steel 45 degrees against the corner of your anvil and strike the back of it. And basically, you're driving the corner of the anvil into the steel, creating sort of a triangular pattern. And then I said, flip it over onto the flat again and hit down the peaks of those pyramids. And all of a sudden, he was moving the steel at phenomenal rate because he was essentially using the anvil as the peen and the hammer as the flat face. Sort of swap, yeah. swapping the roles of the two tools. Yeah, absolutely, and and that's the thing is using like the it comes down to pounds per square inch, right? Like the the larger the surface area of contact, the you know wider the load is uh, placed upon. So if you have two pounds of force over a square foot, you're not going to get much work done. But if you have two pounds of force down to, you know, the size square of the centimeter. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, or a square centimeter. You're going to do a lot more work. Uh, and actually, this is one of the reasons why I prefer English cutlass hammers to the more traditional Japanese-style uh, dog's heads, is because the English cutler hammer uses that nose, the, the foreshortening of the, uh, the round of the uh, hammer billet, to make a smaller surface face, like a smaller contact face. And that means that the energy is more concentrated into that small area and means you get more work done for the same weight of hammer. Mm, more bang for your buck, so to speak. Yeah, and I've had quite a few people actually remark to me after they've received my dog's head hammers that they have, you know, never beveled faster than with an English cutler. And that all it comes down to is it's not anything, you know, magical or anything. It's literally just that it has more energy for the surface uh, of the face. That sounds exactly like something someone who makes magical hammers would say. (laughs) Ah, you got me. So on to you. (laughs) Well, you have one of my hammers. It's true, and I do love it. I I, I use it for all of my bevels. Um, But it's not not just hammers, though, that you can increase the amount of perceived strength that you have. Um, One thing that most people tend to start out with as a twisting wrench is basically an adjustable spanner. Yeah, um, I still use one. Clamp that around there. But as soon as you weld on a handle onto the other end of it and get to use both arms when you're working on it, not only do you keep your twists a lot straighter, but you are now uh, halving the amount of work it takes at least mm-hmm. to twist that billet up, which um, 
if you are twisting, you know, a bit of 10 mil square, it's pretty easy to twist. But that gets exponentially more difficult the bigger you get. You move up to an inch square and you're putting your whole body behind that. Oh, yeah. You're not time. doing that but with even... one-handed spanner. <laughs> <laughs> no. Even even with a, a two-handed, quite long handle, because, again, you're talking about leverage. That's right. Um, the longer the, quite the more force. Yeah, the, the longer the handles, the, yeah. But anyway, um, even with a long-handled twisting wrench, inch square is no no pushover. <laughs> no, it is not. It really is not. Even rail spikes, if you're... Um, you haven't done one before and you've only ever worked with a little bit it's a mild steel up to maybe half inch uh mm. suddenly doing a rail spike twist will surprise you because oh, yeah. a rail spike does not look much thicker than half inch when you're no. when you're looking at it but then you go to do it and you realize that because of you know the the way volume works as you scale it up it's actually growing as in a, like the square of itself so it's um, exponential, ex- massively exponential amount of material that you're working. So yeah, it's uh, leverage becomes your friend, and all of this really can be brought back to leverage. It's uh, I know a lot of people probably went to sleep when their teachers were teaching them about Pythagorean theorem, but um, that length of that uh, lever, whether it be the um, the reins on a set of tongs that you're trying to bear down on, whether it be the handles on a twisting wrench, whether it be the handle on a hammer and the distance between where you're holding the handle and the um, hammer head itself, it all adds up to leverage points and more leverage means more power. And it doesn't mean that you need more muscle. It doesn't mean that you need more height. It doesn't mean that you need more weight in your hammer head. What you need to understand is the science of force multiplication. Um, it's amazing what you can get done with a two-pound hammer. Oh, yeah, big time. And Roy Adams is a testament to that. His favorite is a two-pound <laughs> hammer, and it's... Um, Not even. It's a 1.75. <laughs> well, yeah, well, and my main my main driver is a 1.8, and I, I'm quite happy to work Damascus billets down with it. I mean, I use a two and a half pounder for most of my work and I can quite happily forge hammers all day with it. (laughs) Yeah. And it comes down to not just technique, but understanding the leverage that you are using in order to get the job done. So uh, it's it's very easy to dream of power hammers, but think of them more as getting the work done faster, less uh, and less about uh, hitting the work harder. Because there's very few instances in blacksmithing that you actually really need to hit as hard as a giant power hammer can hit. Yeah, unless you're working gigantic blocks of steel. Yeah, that's right. If you're just sort of making tongs and tools, you you could do it by hand. Mm. The, the 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 purpose of a power hammer is to make the job faster and easier on your body. For in, in yeah, industri- industrial settings if you guys uh, out there have a striker and you're, you're doing like damascus for instance one of the things i can recommend is turning the face of your one of the faces of your sledgehammer into a rounding face hmm. you will draw out damascus so much faster <laughs> uh, i did that with uh, both the the 10 pound and the 7 pound hammers that i was using with my striker and we made so much more progress did you see that giant i think it was a straight peen that dan moss made striker's hammer yeah i did yeah 10 pounder i think it was yeah oh that was nice 
Very. That would draw out some steel. Yeah, yeah somebody absolutely. T- s- somebody two-handing a 10-pound straight peen on your work. That, yeah, that draw it Yeah, out. Well, I mean, um, there's a YouTube channel, Amazing KK Daily, uh, who's Cambodian Smiths. And the striker there, I think, uses like a five or six pound sledgehammer on a on a fairly long handle, and it's got a straight pin. And they draw out, you know, like roller bearings and stuff in only a couple of heats because he nice. swings that thing, you know, stupidly fast. Human power and, hammer. Well, that's it. And when you come when when you come to handle length, one of the other things you got to remember is the longer the the handle, the faster the head moves. Mm. Right. Like if if you um, were to to bend your hand at the wrist, you know, just slightly, the, the, the space that your thumb moves, for instance, like you hold your thumb up and you bend your wrist down, your thumb only moves maybe two inches. Put a ruler in your hand, right? Like a meter rule or, you know, a Get long like stick the and do exact, yeah, and then do it, do it exact the exact same movement. And you'll notice that the head moves, like the, the tip of that rod will move two feet you know, or three feet. So the longer the lever, the f- the faster that thing will move, and, and the force further equals it will move. mass times acceleration. Exactly right. So a two pound head moving at a hundred mile an hour is going to do the same amount of work as a four pound head moving at fifty mile an hour. Yeah, and it leads so, to some pretty uh, interesting thought experiments. Actually, um, you could. Uh, everyone's worried about you know what would happen if a comet hit the Earth. Um, yeah. what's even worse is if a grain of sand hit the earth moving at the speed of light. Yes. That would be pretty bad. It's uh-huh. the same, but it's the same thing, you know, it's two pound hammer hitting the earth at the speed of light would be the end of us. <laughs> Absolutely. But, uh, uh it's, it, it, yeah, it comes down to how fast and, and where it hits. Precisely. So, um, something to keep in mind the next time you feel like you're struggling to move something. So if you're choking up on your ham- hammer uh, head, for example, or you, your hand, hand is sitting right underneath your hammer head, you uh, using no leverage whatsoever, basically. You might be using too heavy of a hammer. Mm. Uh, I find that the heavier the hammer I use, the closer to the head I get because I feel like I need it to control it. You, in order um, to get the force out of that heavy head, you need to be moving it quickly. And you can't yes. be doing that if you're groaning every time you lift it up. <laughs> exactly. And, and the thing is, like, I can swing a 10-pound sledgehammer one-handed, and do, occasionally. But I swing way slower than I do with my 2.5-pounder. And depending on the stock I'm working on, that speed is everything. Because every second that you lose lifting that hammer and bringing it back down is heat lost. Mm. My big hammers I usually reserve for driving drifts or punches. Um and and that's about it really if i'm having to work a billet down the biggest i'll go is four pounds i'll rock a four pound to draw out a billet no problems but when it comes to i've got an eight pound that i swing one-handed and that is as high as i'll go and that is exclusively for driving drifts yeah that's it like drift drift driving um and hammer making is the only time i really pick up my big hammers Hmm. i've got an old uh uh, rail spike driver hammer (laughs) yeah it's, and it's, they they have quite narrow faces. Very well, narrow they, faces. Yeah. Yeah. They they taper quite radically. So yeah. No, they, they make a good they make a good forging hammer actually. Tasmania is the land of the railroads, so you find a lot of old rail track um, tooling and anvils and things. Some of those 
some of those uh, anvils that they used to work on the railroads back in the day, you know, 150, mm-hmm. 200 years ago, monsters. Yeah. Absolute monsters. There's one in a museum near me I could lie down on top of. <laughs> be an uncomfortable That's- night's sleep, but it's, yeah. That sounds like my kind of anvil. Yeah, it was sitting on the floor, not on any sort of stump, and it was almost at the right height. <laughs> nice. Yeah, and I'm 6'4". <laughs> yep. Yes. Nice, nice, nice uh, medium-sized anvil right there. Yes. But with topic done, we need to introduce this month's Forgecast Challenge, guys. And this is a sponsored one, sponsored by the handsome and talented Ryan at Otway Fiddleback. Give him a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Otway Fiddleback is going to give you, or the winner of this uh, Forgecast challenge, or, yeah, it's a challenge, um, a $50 voucher for his awesome wood products. And he has some of the nicest um, handle blocks out there. So with some lovely chatoyants, and you guys know how addicted I am to chatoyants. So... This month, we want you to make, out of metal, and I note I said metal, not steel, a ridiculously, and I mean redonkulously, ornate set of chopsticks, including the hashiyoki, the little rest that you, in polite company, rest your chopsticks on. So the prize will go to the set which impresses us the most. So we want you to pull out all the stops. We want some. Tw- we want to see twists. We want to see inlays. We want to see maybe inset pins. We want to see mm. texture work. We want to see interesting material choices. But we want them to be made of metal or involve metal in some substantial way. Yes. And it's not just the chopsticks. You also need to make the hashiyoki. And you can make that ornate as well. That contributes to the ornateness of the piece. So that is your challenge. And if you're going to compete, post on Instagram or Facebook using the hashtag ForgecastChallenge. And remember, this does have a prize, which we will judge at the end of June. So get on board. Do it. Please your senpai Fudgeriga. <laughs> get him to notice you. Yes, notice me, senpai. <laughs> Yes, and get in touch with your inner weeb. Mm-hmm. As we no, all should. Yes, as, as we all should. All right, guys. I hear the music starting to kick in, so look us up. Uh, if you need to email us a question, send it to ask.forgecast at gmail.com. And if you're looking for Sam, where can they find you? You can find me in the kitchen sink and also on all, the, all other social media sites under Sam Towns Bladesmith. Where can they find you, Alex? Same thing, all other social media <laughs> websites. Look for Valhalla. I'm the Sam <laughs> in the background, sneaking up on Sam. No, Valhalla Ironworks, I go by. Um, you, can, you can find me, just Google me. I'm everywhere. And uh, we'll catch you again next week for another exciting episode of the Forcecast. See you then. See ya.